Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to continue our study and our reading in verse 6 in just a moment. Isaiah 9 and verse 6. The title of this morning's message is Mighty God, and we're looking at these four names that we're giving to the baby Jesus of 700 years before his birth. Isaiah talked about these names. Uh, I want to, uh, to just remind you that the context of this prophecy is pretty remarkable. It is given about 725 B.C., and that's significant because those of you who are Bible scholars, you remember that after David and Saul, the kingdom of Israel split into a northern and southern kingdoms. That northern kingdom would fall into idolatry and rebellion against the Lord. And in 722 B.C., three years after this prophecy, that northern kingdom would be completely wiped away. It would be another hundred years before it would happen, but the southern kingdom is also going to be carried into captivity. And so the world that Isaiah is living in is, is pretty dark and bleak. People are not responding to his preaching, and God told him it would be that way, but he was to be faithful and, and to preach that word. And eight years before this prophecy was given, 733, in the very northernmost part of the northern kingdom, there was an area of territory that was conquered first. And the people who lived there were plunged into a loss of freedom, a loss of the ability to get to the temple of Jerusalem to worship God. They were truly plunged into darkness. And that before anybody else lost their lands or their lives. Now what's interesting about this is of all the people Isaiah could have addressed this to, he's speaking to those people. Those people who are already in bondage, already lost their land, lost everything. And he has a vision. And in uh, verse 2, he says, the people who are living in darkness, they will see a great light. They have seen a great light. And, and he doesn't know it's 700 years, but he looks 700 years into the future. And he begins talking about the birth of a baby a son who's going to be given, the government's going to rest on his shoulders, and he's going to be called these four names. And he's addressing it to the people in those northernmost territories of the northern kingdom. Guess what that area would be called 700 years later? Galilee. Galilee. And he says, you people who are in darkness, you people who have lost everything, he said, I want you to know something. A baby's going to be born a son is going to be given. And the people in darkness there will have seen a great light. Look at verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called. Here it is. Wonderful Counselor. We saw that last week. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Some years ago I was working on the family car. I fancied myself something of a shade tree mechanic, and the water pump had gone out of our little Buick that we had. And so I thought, you know, we have five children at home. I can barely keep them fed and clothed, so I'm going to fix it myself. And so I got out my, my tools. It was always a great adventure because I, I typically needed to go buy an extra tool. You always have to buy new tools for these things, right? 
And so I got everything together and I, I unhooked everything that looked like needed to come off of that water pump. I took the hoses off. I disconnected it. I got it to where it was turning freely on the little piston. All I had to do was slide it off of that piston and, and I could take it and get a new one, replace it, whatever, and put a new one on it. I was feeling really good about this. And so I, I started to slide it off of the piston and it hit the wall of the engine. The little compartment where the engine sat, it hit the side of it. Some engineer somewhere thought it would be really cool to design an engine where you couldn't slide anything off the piston unless you lifted the whole engine out of the engine compartment. And I'm sure they were howling in laughter somewhere when they designed it because, uh, because now I was stuck. And so I called my friend, a mechanic. He had his own shop. And I normally went to him with things like this. And he would give me a really good deal. And so I called him up and my car got towed to the, my friend's shop. And I put all the parts that I had taken off into a box. And I carried the box, followed the tow truck, got to the mechanic's place. And, and I said, I said, can you help me? I mean, I was really disturbed about this. I, I was in darkness, land of great darkness. I had not yet seen a great light. I needed to be rescued. I needed a savior. And my mechanic friend said, I can help you. We'll have this running good as new. I said, praise the Lord. And then I thought for a moment, you know, I've been trying to save money on this deal. So I said, hey, do I get a discount because of all the parts I pulled off? He said, no, in fact, it may cost you more because i got to figure out where it all goes. And um, so I didn't save any money at that. Listen, the people in that northernmost area that are reading this prophecy, they are kind of like that. They are in darkness. The Bible says they see a great light, and, and that great light turns out to be a baby, that baby that is called a son, that baby that is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, here's the thing that happens. Those names are not names that God gave to his own son. The names God gave to him were Jesus and Emmanuel, which means God with us. No, these are names that people give to the baby Jesus, give to the man Jesus, when they experience him in their lives. And so we read these things, and they sound nice, and we put them on Christmas ornaments and that sort of thing. But these are designed to be real-life titles given to Jesus, not because he just deserves it, but because of my experience with him, I determined that this is who he really is. He's a wonderful counselor. He's a mighty God. He's an everlasting father. We'll see that next week. And then a prince of peace. And so the question becomes, at, at, at Christmas time, have I experienced Jesus in such a way that these names make sense? And we want to look at the one mighty God today. Now, mighty God in Hebrew consists of two words, El Gibor. El means God. Gibor means a mighty one. And the essence of the meaning for Gibor is really the word we would use for hero, a hero who comes in when someone's calling out in distress and needs to be rescued, it is the Gabor, the mighty one, who comes in and rescues, delivers them from their situation, and puts them in a place of safety. Jesus, as people experience him, is called El Gabor. El Gabor. Now, what does Isaiah mean by that name? In the very next chapter, he uses it. In chapter 10, verse 20, it says, And it shall come to pass... Isaiah 10, verse 20, and it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as have escaped of the house of Jacob will never again depend on him who defeated them. The remnant of Israel refers to those people 
from the northern kingdom and Judah to the south who are carried off into captivity in the future, and 70 years later, some of them come back. They are the remnant. He says, this remnant will never again depend on him who defeated them, but will depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. You see, what was popular in that day and time for a nation to do, especially if you were weak and you didn't have lots of guns and tanks, is when an enemy was coming at you from one direction, you formed an alliance with someone else, and you said, in exchange for our joining us in our fight, we'll give you taxes, we'll give you land, we'll give you something in exchange for it, and they would make a deal. And, um, and Israel was guilty of that, and even Judah would make alliances like that. God doesn't like it. In fact, God's offended by that throughout the book of Isaiah. And so he says the people who come back, they're never again going to depend on people like that. They're never going to do that. But will depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. Verse 21, the remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God, to El Gabor. It wasn't that they would come from Babylonian captivity and then come back to the promised land. It was more than that. They would come back to God as their primary and only source of dependence, El Gabor. This is illustrated later in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah 31. And in Isaiah 31, verse 1, he says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. They're trusting tanks. They're trusting the White House. They're trusting Congress. They're trusting all kinds of things, but they're not trusting uh, the Holy One of Israel. Verse 2, yet he also is wise and will bring disaster and will not call back his words, but will rise against the house of evildoers and against the help of those who work iniquity. Now the Egyptians are men and not God. Do you hear the argument? that he's making. God, he says, whoa, to those who are going to put their trust in people like the Egyptians or in mechanical things like horses and guns and tanks. Whoa, he says, instead of trusting God. And you know, how many times do you and I, and I'm speaking of me too, we have to learn the hard way. Where I get into a circumstance I've never faced before, and I can blame it on anxiety and blame it on fear, and I usually do, and I, I make a bad decision. And I go and form an alliance, or I put my trust in something, or I scramble and try to reach for help. And the essence of hopelessness for the Christian at that moment is when I discover that none of those things are going to help me. None of those things ultimately are going to make it better. None of those things are going to make it go away. And so what is Isaiah teaching us with this title, El Gabor? He's saying that your father wants you to turn to him first in any kind of circumstance that you ever face. Come to him first, put your trust fully in him, and he is the mighty one. He is the one who will take care of you. Well, how can I know Jesus like this? Do you know him like this? How can I know Jesus so that my fear is overcome and I, too, can call him mighty God. There's a couple things we need to know. Number one, this is real basic, but we need to know it. Jesus is not the source of my fears. 
I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm praying and I'm in trouble, I just, I, I don't call it complaining. I don't call it accusing God. I call it praying. But boy, I can whine with the best of them. I don't know. I know you all are more spiritual than your pastor. But, you know, God, would you please do something about this and make this change? And would you do this and do that? And uh, as if God needed my advice. And, um, and then I'll pray really hard as if God needed my strength or my effort or my push to get up and to act. And, and, and all the while, what he wants me to do is really simple. Listen to this. 1 Peter 5, verses 6 to 8. We studied it this summer. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Who is that? El Gabor, isn't it? The mighty hand of God. Humble yourselves under his mighty hand that he may exalt you in due time. Here it is. Casting all your care upon him. What does God want me to do with my worries? He wants me to take all my worries, all of my fears, and deliver those at his feet. And say, God, you're in charge. You are sovereign. You're in control. I'm going to let you deal with this stuff. And I'm going to trust you. And whatever you tell me to do, that's what I'll do. But I'm going to take every time I'm worried, every time I'm anxious, every time I'm fearful, I'm going to cast it on you. Now look what happens if I don't. Verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now, who's he going to devour? The person that's worried to death, the person that's fearful, the person that's anxious. He just comes along and eats them up. And you say, well, pastor, I thought that we had been delivered from the power and influence of Satan. And, and Colossians 1.13 certainly says that, doesn't it? It says that we have been delivered from the domain of darkness, and we have been conveyed or translated into the kingdom of his son. Colossians 1.13 says that. Well, yes, you have been delivered, and in, in that sense, the victory is God's and the war is over, but the fight continues. The fight continues. See, he doesn't want you to trust the Lord. He doesn't want you to share your faith. He doesn't want you to be the kind of person who's so trusting the Lord that there's joy in your life, love in your heart, and there's a vibrant aspect to your life that people would say, why are you so happy all the time? He doesn't want that. And so what he wants to do is neutralize you and, and get you so bound up with worry and fear that there's no joy, no possibility of witness. And if he, can, he can't take you back for himself, but he can certainly neutralize you so that you're no good to God, no good to yourself, and no threat to him. And one of the ways he does that is, is with fear. Now, I want to call your attention to 2 Timothy 1, verse 7. This is a, a letter, 2 Timothy is probably the last letter that Paul wrote. And he writes this letter to Timothy, one of his protégés that he had raised up, invested in, and sent out. And because this is the last letter he wrote, he's probably near the end of his life. There's things he wrote in the letter that lead us to believe that. And in 2 Timothy 1, verse 7, listen to what he writes. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So, first of all, I notice that Paul's not fearful. He's in a dark, horrible place. He's chained up. It's probably the end of his journey. His life is about to end. And he says, God has not given us a spirit of fear. So that means that if I am fearful, whatever else I may say about it, 
If I am fearful and struggling with anxiety, God is not the source. God does not give us a spirit of fear. Now, in contrast to that, he says, but he has given us, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So imagine if you're a Christian who gets the worst possible news or is confronted with the worst possible circumstance that you can imagine. And that circumstance comes suddenly, maybe this afternoon, maybe tonight, maybe it happened this week, and it comes. And at that moment, you have a very real choice to make. I can be anxious. Maybe you didn't even make the choice. You just started becoming anxious. I can be anxious, fearful, worried. Or I can take that burden, that fear, that anxiety, that circumstance, and I said, Lord, here. I'm going to give you this. And what I would like, Lord, is instead of a spirit of fear, I would like that spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now, what happens when a Christian faces circumstances that dismantle everybody else? That when you and I face a circumstance like that and God gives us the spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind, what happens to it? People say, how can you handle such a thing? How can you go through that kind of experience and not fall apart? You see, people start seeing something, some dynamic happening inside of you, and you don't have to try to witness. You are a witness just at that moment. Can I give you an example from our own church right now? I want to I tell you about John and Gail Martinson. Now, John got probably the worst possible news a person could get a few weeks ago that, uh, that he had a brain tumor in a form of cancer. He's probably not going to survive. Uh, but before his surgery, as, when he and I talked about it, he and Gail, probably the most joyful people I've ever seen, face one of the greatest crises a human being can face. Joyful. Joyful. John's attitude is, I may not get out of this alive, but I'm ready to go. Excitement. I'm a, I might just possibly be about to meet Jesus. Excitement. Joy. And I would see him after the surgery, and he, 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 he couldn't get his words out because of the damage that had been caused. But he could certainly communicate. And, um, and his eyes lit up when you started sharing Scripture with him. His lies lit up when you started praying with him. This man is still joyful. He's in a body that's broken, but he's got a spirit that is a spirit of, a, of power and of love and of a sound mind. And his wife does too. And I praise the Lord for that. Jesus is not the source of your fears. There's a second thing here that we need to see, and that's this. Jesus is the only solution for my fears. The only solution for my fears. Now, we have lots of ways that we deal with fear as individuals. Uh, I don't know how you deal with it, um, but how are we raised? I mean, we have all kinds of cultural ways we deal with fear. Uh, we're, we tell little ones, they fall down, they get hurt. What do we tell them? It's all right, just rub it in, get up, keep moving. You know, someone told me after first hour, they said, Grit it and spit on it. You know, that's what they were told, I think, or that's what they were telling their kids. I don't know. And, um, you know, suck it up, buttercup. You know, just be tough. And when something comes at you, you just meet it. You just kind of, and we love to see characters in movies that way and characters in shows and stories. We, we celebrate people who are tough. When the tough stuff comes, the tough get going. I mean, we're, we're all about that, all right? And, and that is exactly a mistake for the believer because your resources are extremely limited and when it comes to the devil and his attacks on you to create fear and hopelessness in you, you're going to lose. That battle's already lost. 
you are not strong enough to defeat the devil on his terms. In fact, there's only one person who has ever defeated the enemy face to face, and that's Jesus Christ. And, and so we got to be sure that we have the right solution. The, the God is not the source, but he is the solution. Jesus is El Gabor. He's the mighty one, and I need to understand what's involved with that. Uh, a couple examples where the Scripture so clearly points to him. One of them is in Romans 7. We've been studying this on Thursday mornings. The first half of Romans 7 talks about how a lost person, a man without God, that can try to be good, try to keep all the rules, try to do the right thing, they're still going to fail. In the last half of chapter 7, a person can be a Christian. Jesus can live in them. They can have trusted Christ for their salvation and try to keep all the rules, and they're still going to fail. They experience failure. Now, there's, there's a problem. But here's what the answer is according to Paul in Romans 7. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's the only solution, according to Paul. Later in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57, Paul writes, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a pattern here in that statement that's true of every aspect of your life as a Christian. Is that victory is not something you earn. Victory is not something that you win. Victory is not something you get by just merely praying harder and reading your Bible more. Victory is something that God gives. And you receive. The tragedy is too many of us are fighting a battle that's already been lost instead of fighting a battle by claiming a victory that's already been won. I want to go back to 2 Timothy chapter 1 now, verse 7. I want to add verse 8 to it. Listen to what he says. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Who's he talking to? Timothy. Do not be ashamed, Timothy, of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but Share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. What does he say to him? He says, God's not given us a spirit of fear. What God gives is a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. Then he turns to Timothy and says, therefore, Timothy, listen to me, buddy. Come in close. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord. Don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner. Dear one, I believe that you and I are living in a time where it's going to be more and more difficult to identify yourself with other Christians, especially if they are perceived as having spoken the truth or taken a stand. Just this week, uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines. How many of y'all know who Chip and Joanna Gaines are? Oh, right. I don't watch a show. My wife makes me watch it. It's called Fixer Upper. A couple in Central Texas uh, outside Waco, and they redo houses, and they really look nice when they get done. And, and the thing is, it's a show that's incredibly popular. I mean, it's probably the most popular of that kind of show, home improvement show that's out there. Incredibly popular. This man, this woman, are extremely strong believers. They, they're a man and woman of faith, and they go to a church where the Bible is taught. And an article was published this week online in a popular news site that that made it a, a horrendous, amazing discovery 
that their pastor actually believes what Christians have believed for 2,000 years. And their pastor came out publicly after the vote last year, um, rejecting or not accepting homosexual marriage or same-sex marriage, and, and actually saying that homosexuality, the practice of it, is a sin. And, and, they, and the article said, this is just terrible. This is awful. Do Chip and Joanna Gaines believe this? And, and they were almost trying to goad them into taking a public stand and saying, yes, we agree with our pastor. And, and, and what would happen to them if they take that public stand? I don't know if they will. I'm not saying they should. I'm just saying, what would happen to them if they take that public stand? Well, some people would say, well, we can't be friends with you anymore. We can't support you. We can't give your money to your show. We can't buy your stuff. And so there'd be an economic cost. There'd be a social cost. There'll be all kinds of costs. And increasingly, you and I are going to find ourselves in relationships with people, maybe family members, maybe friends, maybe people in town. And when they discover that you really believe this stuff, there's going to be a cost. And Paul turns to Timothy and says, don't be ashamed, brother. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord or of me as prisoner don't. So what does he say instead? He says, but share with me, this is the end of verse 8, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. He says, Timothy, here's what I want you to do. I want you, wherever you are, you're praying for me, you're reading this letter, whatever you're doing. Timothy, I don't want you to be ashamed of me because I'm in prison. Here's what I want you to do. I want you, in your prayer time, I want you to step into my suffering and share it with me. The writer of Hebrews years later would say, pray for people in prison as if you were chained with them. Hebrews 13, pray like you're you're in chains. Pray like you're in prison. Pray like it's your diagnosis and you're in the hospital with a terminal disease. Pray pray like you're a part of it. Share in that, he says. Share in my suffering with me. Now, how you do that, Timothy, is not by sucking it up. How you share in, your, in the sufferings with me is not by just trying harder, being tough, being strong, being courageous, being an admirable person in yourself. He says, Here, here's how you do it. Share it be with me in the sufferings. How? According to the power of God. Not your power. Not your strength. Not your ingenuity. Not your intelligence. Not your credentials. Not your everything, anything that has to do with you. I want you to share in my sufferings. How? According to the power of God. Something that God gives, not something that you work up and that you learn to do in your own strength. How does this happen? I want to call your attention to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. And um, I just want to point out, if you don't know this verse already, if it's not a memory verse or something that you carry with you or think about regularly, I would encourage you to do so. This is one worth reading every day. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. Paul's saying that every Christian here, the moment you trusted Jesus, the moment you looked to Christ and him alone is the only way that you could be saved, the only way that your sins could be forgiven, the moment you looked to him that way and you trusted him, you by faith received Christ. You by faith received forgiveness for your sins. You didn't work for it. You didn't earn it. It didn't have anything to do with you. It was just the heart of the gospel, the good news, is that Christ died for your sins. He loved you. That's why he did it. When you put your trust in him, faith in Christ, he forgives you. Well, also 
what happens at that moment. The Bible says that you, you receive forgiveness not by, as a package deal, but because Christ comes into your life. And you're made one with him. And so there's a sense in which when Christ was crucified, you were crucified. When Jesus died, you died. When he was raised, you were raised. And you became a participant in the life of Christ fully. And so he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Now think about that. El Gabor. The mighty one who died on the cross, was raised from the grave, who in eternity has no beginning and he has no end, who possesses all power, all wisdom, lives in you. That's just a truth you have to receive by faith. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. You don't have to do a thing except trust Jesus for your salvation, and that becomes true of you. And then he says, and the life which I now live in the flesh, this side of heaven, you and me, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Mighty God. How do I live? The same way that I started this Christian life, I received him by faith, I trusted him, he saved me. And every day I trust him and receive Christ. Not for salvation, but so I can live. The life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. I trust him. Now, how does that work out when you face a brand new circumstance that scares you to death and threatens to overwhelm you? What does that look like? Tommy, would you come up here for just a moment? No? Gene, would you come up here? (laughs) It's one of y'all. And uh, Corey, would you come up here? I just need a couple of you. I won't make you talk. Um, Corey, you just stand right there. Tommy, you come stand by me. Okay? El Gabor. Okay? This is my mighty one. All right? I want you to pretend he's Jesus. <laughs> okay, right here. And this, this isn't the devil. Okay? Come closer, Corey. Come up, come up here. This right here is some circumstance. Corey represents that circumstance that comes into our lives that I'm not prepared for. Get your fist like you're going to swing at me. Okay, go bring it this way a little bit. Stop. Okay, all right. And and this is where a lot of us are when that circumstance comes. I mean, if I do, I'm going to get hit. I'm going to get hit either way. Um, I mean, this circumstance is coming. I can't change it. Can't stop it and it's coming at me, this is where I am in this life, okay? So how do I respond to that? Well, according to Paul, I live by faith in the Son of God, okay? It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So what happens here is I get to step back, and I bring in my body double, okay? And I say, El Gabor, Lord Jesus, I don't have what it takes to meet this circumstance. I don't have it. It's not in me. But you can You can meet this circumstance in me. And so, Lord, I'm going to give all my cares to you, including this circumstance right here. And I'm going to trust you to meet this circumstance in me and through me. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but what has he given us? A spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. Oh, God, 
I believe that you live in me. You said that you do. And I'm going to trust you, Lord Jesus, to meet this in me. El Gabor. Thank you, men. You can have a seat. Did you all give them a hand? I've spent much of my life as a believer wanting and seeking and trying and wanting to communicate the fact that the life that you and I have been given is so amazing compared to the lives we tend to embrace and default to. The life that we've been given is no less than the life of Jesus Christ. And I don't know what you're facing this morning, dear one. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know how hard it is. And I believe me, I am sympathetic to it. I care. As your brother in Christ, I care. But I want you to know that I can't make it stop. I can't make it change. Nobody around you, there's certain circumstances that you face. Nobody can make the darkness run. Nobody can shine the great light. But he can. El Gabor can. And he truly is our hero. He is the one who says, depend on me. Don't look at anything else, anyone else. Depend on me, he says. And when you experience that I am capable, that I am almighty, that I can take care of you, you will call me mighty God. And so every circumstance has a purpose. Let me read the scripture and then I'll give you the bottom line. Here's the last scripture I just wanted to read. John 16, 33. These things I have spoken to you, Jesus said, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. It is inevitable. Something is going to go wrong. Nobody's life is trouble free. If you're a Christian, he said you're going to have trouble. Amen? Anybody having trouble? Amen. But be of good cheer. He says don't walk around like a sad Sally. He says, be of good cheer. Why? Because I'm El Gabor. I have overcome the world. And there's nothing that you're going to encounter, nothing that you're going to meet, that me in you, coming out through you, can't handle. Be of good cheer. (laughs) Be joyful. Here's the bottom line. Jesus wants to make himself known to you as mighty God, as You trust him fully in every new circumstance. I don't know when. It may be happening to you right now. It may happen tonight, this week, or next month. I don't know. But when that moment comes and you know this is a big one, it's bigger than you are, that circumstance comes. Look at it and say, I realize now, my pastor told me, what I can do in this moment that this every new circumstance that comes into my life is a brand new opportunity to trust God. No matter what happens. And you don't know what else to do. How many times have you felt like, I don't know what to do? Here's what you do. You take it, you lay at his feet, and you trust God with it. Every new circumstance, trust him. Do you know El Gabor? Do you know Jesus, the mighty one? As I described earlier in the message, Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth. He was God in the flesh. That's what Emmanuel means, God with us. And he came to show us what the Father is like. 
He also showed us what a life of faith looks like. He trusted his Father for everything. And he came as our hero, the one who would rescue us. He rescues us from our sins that separate us from God, from our sins that would confine us to an eternity in hell without God. He comes and he goes to the cross, and God puts our sins on him. He is the sin bearer. He is our substitute. He takes our place, and God pours out an eternity of punishment and hell and wrath and everything you and I deserve for our sins. Jesus takes our place, and he dies. And to prove that sins were forgiven, the Bible says he was raised from the dead. People saw him. They've been talking about the fact that he raised from the dead for 2,000 years. The Bible says that whosoever believes in him, this son who was, who was given, this child who was born, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have everlasting life. This morning, are you ready to trust Jesus Christ for all the forgiveness you need for your sins for all eternity? And when you trust him, know this, as we've talked about this morning, he will not only forgive your sins, he will come to live inside you. And he will give you a new life. He will not leave you in your old one. He's going to give you a new life. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. Whether you're in the balcony or downstairs, if you've never trusted Christ, I invite you to come. It would be an honor and a privilege for us pastors, for us to share with you scriptures that you can read for yourself. You don't have to take my word for it. Read it for yourself, how a person becomes, becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. And then, brother or sister, if you're in a moment of crisis right now, you just need someone to pray with you or for you, I invite you to come. We'll be happy to do that. You can come, just use the altar privately, or you can just pray there in the pew. Say, oh, God, I'm scared to death. I've been trying to do this on my own. I realize now you didn't give me the fear, and you have given me a way out. And this morning right now, I don't know how it's going to change. I don't know where this is headed. I don't know what the final event's going to be, but I'm going to take these circumstances that are scaring me and frightening me, and I'm going to lay them at your feet. How do you need to respond to him?